0: Well, you know, sometimes when you are reading the Bible, you run across things and you go like, why did I never see that before, right? Have you ever had that experience? And I was doing this a, a, a few years ago and I have to, to be reading in Luke chapter 11 where Jesus is out praying and he's off praying by himself and, uh, and then he comes back to the disciples. And they just ask him this question, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And I'd never thought about it this way but all of a sudden I started thinking to myself, it is the only thing that the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them to do. I mean, you would have thought they would have asked him to teach them more. Like, Jesus teaches how to preach a really good message. And Jesus teaches how to share our faith. And Jesus teaches how to counsel people and how to follow up new believers. And Jesus teaches these things and nothing else. You can look all the way through the New Testament. Just this one thing, Jesus teaches to pray. And I realized that probably for them, they had realized that this was the secret of Jesus' life. This was the secret of his impact, the secret of his being able to see into the hearts and the lives of people, to show compassion to those who were hurting, to teach the scriptures with incisive authority, that this is what made Jesus tick. And I think they realized also, by comparison, their lives didn't hold a candle to that, but they wanted it. They wanted it. And I have to think sometimes about my own life, and maybe you think this about your life as well, as you like, you wonder, why, why does my life sometimes feel so powerless and weak and insipid and boring? And I thought, maybe it's because we just don't know how to pray. We don't understand it all. And that if we could maybe understand it, if we could broaden and deepen and expand our idea of what prayer is that that maybe we would too would be able to tap into that kind of strength, that kind of wisdom, that kind of insight, and that kind of impact in the world around us. And so today we're in Daniel, part nine, the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. If you have a Bible or you wanna fire up your smartphone or your Bible app, feel free to do that. We're gonna be looking at Daniel chapter nine and essentially Daniel nine is a prayer of Daniel's. There's a couple of other things in there but it's largely a prayer. And what we want to do this morning is just kind of look at that prayer and learn a little bit more about what prayer is really all about. And what I'm going to do is surface just two main observations that I hope that you'll walk away with about this particular prayer. But before we do that, again, it's very good for us to kind of survey the situation on the ground uh, before we begin. So in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we want to begin to do that. So join me as we read starting in Daniel chapter 9, 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asuerus, a descent, by, excuse me, by descent Amede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Usually, there was always, there's always something that moves us to pray. Something comes in. In this case, there are three convergent streams that begin to prompt Daniel in this particular prayer. The first one is just the external circumstances. The massive transition that had occurred from the Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persian Empire that had taken place some years before. And then again, as Darius hits his first year, Darius is the second king, so there's been a, a royal transition of sorts. And it was massive, it was a tectonic shift in international relationships and scene. It was a big deal. And I was thinking about transitions because transitions are this prime opportunity for us to pray. They're just a prime opportunity. It's when we feel the the, the least certain about things. It's where we we sometimes don't feel like we have the direction or the insight or the wisdom. We don't know what's going to happen. So transitions are very important times to do that. Maybe it's when you have your first child. Maybe it's when you get married. Maybe it's when you graduate from high school into college. Maybe it's when you are a parent of a high schooler who graduates into college, and you now become an empty nester. But transitions are a part of life, and they are a prime opportunity for us to do that. But there's a second kind of convergent stream in this, and there's another prompt, and that's simply Daniel's age. Daniel is an OG. He's an old guy. He is probably in his early 80s at this time. Uh, he has roughly been uh, in Babylon in exile with all the other exiles for almost 67 years. And you know what? Age kind of changes you. Age is a transition in itself. But sometimes when you kind of begin to think about the difference between where you are now and where things were back then, it's an amazing thing. Uh, I ran across this little ditty uh, about the difference that time makes. It's called What a Difference 46 Years Makes. And so I just want to read it to you. In 1975, it was long hair. In 2021, longing for hair. (laughs) Check it out, yes. In 1975, it was acid rock. In 2021, acid reflux. In 1975, it was the Rolling Stones. But in 2021, kidney stones. Yes. In 1975, going to a new hip joint. In 2021, getting a new hip joint, right? And here's my favorite, 1975, disco. Remember disco, oh, yeah. yeah? Good. In 2021, Costco. <laughs> you read me, you read me here, you know it. So time makes this huge difference, right? And Daniel's been there for a long time and he's, uh, he's been thinking about this. And it forces you to think about the future differently as you get older, right? Daniel's going strong, but he's no young buck. Then there's this final prompt. And this is the spiritual one, and you read it in the text here, D- Jeremiah's prophecy. In Jeremiah 25.1, Jeremiah had prophesied these words. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. Skip to verse 8. Because you have not obeyed my word, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. I will bring them against the land and its inhabitants. This whole land, that is the land of Judah, Palestine. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So there's the number 70 here. Then in Jeremiah 29:1, also in verse 10 as well, the same thing. Daniel, excuse me, Jeremiah had written some letters to the exiles. It says, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Skip to verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. Daniel begins to read this, and he begins to think about it. Now, here's something that was very clear to Daniel, that God had declared 70 years that the nation of Israel would be in exile in a foreign land. But there were some things that were unclear, things Daniel didn't know. And one was, how precise should we take this number 70, right? How precise do we take it? Is it a literal 70? You know, those of you who study the Bible uh, deeply understand there's, as we interpret the Bible, there's what we call plain literal, which is things are just taken at face value. But there's also figurative literal. There's a lot of figurative symbolic language, poetry, prophecy in the Bible that, that is highly symbolic. How do we take these numbers? We want to read it that way so for instance the number 70 all right can sometimes simply mean in hebrew language a lifetime it just stands for a lifetime it's not designed to be super precise but approximate in that way or sometimes i mean it's kind of like psalm 90 it says the years of man's life are 70 if re- or if by reason of strength 80 right so it's kind of it's a lifetime or do we take it in terms of hebrew numerology the number seven which is the number of perfection, times 10, which is the number of completion. That God is saying, I will give a complete time for my people to be in exile. Daniel didn't know how precise to take this. And he also didn't know what the starting point would be, how you would calculate it from which starting point. From 605 B.C. when Daniel was taken captive? Or was it going to be 586 B.C. when the city of Jerusalem fell and the temple was leveled? If you look at both of those dates and you look at the date of the first year of Darius here, the dates do not fit. If it's 605 B.C., it's going to be somewhere around 83 years when Daniel begins to think about this, well beyond the 70. Or if you think about it in terms of 586 B.C., then you're also looking at 60, I don't know, 4 years or something, 67 years, something like that. It's less than 70. So, is it approximate? Is it definite? How do we look at this? Here's the thing that was very, very, very clear to Daniel. God was sovereign. God was active, alive, and in the world, and God was working out his perfect plan for the universe. Daniel knew this beyond a shadow of a doubt. But what Daniel didn't know was the timing of all this, and he wanted to understand the timing. That was the big thing. So this intrigues him. He begins cogitating and thinking about this and, and going over it in his mind. And it launches his search engine, which eventually then leads him to prayer. It eventually leads him to prayer. So let's pick this up in Daniel chapter 9, verse 3, as Daniel begins to pray. He says, Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him. Excuse me, turn the page right. seeking him by prayer or in prayer in pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So Daniel begins to pray, right? And this, by the way, is probably not an isolated, one-off kind of prayer. Our tendency when we read prayers like this in the Bible is to think, well, you know, they prayed one time about this. This probably reveals something that's more like a season of prayer. It summarizes, and oftentimes the prayers when they're recorded in the Bible are summaries of longer periods of time praying, maybe days, weeks, possibly even months. And they summarize basically the content of what Daniel had been praying. And of course, you can see this really means a lot to Daniel. It's very serious about it. It's very intentional. It's accompanied with sackcloth and ashes and fasting. But what I want you to notice about the prayer is this. It's different from our run-of-the-mill, everyday kind of prayer that you and I pray. Most of the time when we pray, we pray prayers that are about ourselves. And there are good things. It's not a wrong thing to do. We pray for continuing relationship with God. I mean, that's what prayer is. It's interacting with God. It's, it's about the relationship that we have, and it's a way we carry on that relationship with God in listening and talking to him. Sometimes it's because we want to receive mercy or grace or comfort or forgiveness or something that God is going to offer to us, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Sometimes it's crisis management. You're like Peter out on the water. Lord, help me, right? You just need something right now. Right? And those are the normal ways we tend to look at prayer. This prayer is very different. This prayer is what we're gonna call intercessory prayer. And I always struggle with the word because I think in our Christianese, it's, it's taken on a whole different connotation than sometimes we think about. But this is my first observation that I want you to see, that this is an intercessory prayer. Dr. Vernon Grounds, who was the president of Denver Theological Seminary, used to say that prayer is sometimes evasion. It's a way to get out of our responsibility. Sometimes it is edification. It's the building up of other people and sometimes it's engagement Sometimes it's engagement and that's the word I want you to hold on to here because Daniel saw these circumstances in this moment as an opportunity to step into the flow of the Spirit and to participate and partner with God in what God was doing in the world in human history He's going to step into the flow of the Spirit, and he's going to partner with God in what God is doing in the world around him and advance God's kingdom in the world. I don't, how many of you surf out here? Any, any of you are surfers? Any of you ever surfed? <laughs> any of you bought boogie board or bodies? Okay, yeah, mo- most of us have done things like that, right? So you know, surfers know this, they do not create the waves. Surfers do not tell the waves what to do. But they will oftentimes watch the wave build out in the distance. And when the wave comes, they then try to catch the wave. And once they catch the wave, they try to, to read it. How, is it. how is it breaking? What's happening? What's the intensity? What's the degree of decline? There are all kinds of things that are, that are going on. But they're not telling the wave what to do. They are following. They are reading the wave, and they are stepping into the flow of the wave itself. Daniel recognized this, that prayer was going to be engagement in what God was doing in the world. And he keenly felt his responsibility to be a part of that. He's asking these questions. What part do you want me to play, God? What do you want me to contribute to this? What can I do? How can I become part of what it is that you are doing? And as he begins to pray, God begins to do some things. So if you like to fill in the blank, here's your fill in the blank on the uh, notes, the message notes for you. Uh, Is this. Prayer is a strategic weapon to advance God's kingdom in the world. Prayer is a strategic weapon to advance God's kingdom in the world. That is what intercessory prayer is. It is a strategic weapon. Now we don't like to think about it sometimes that way. But throughout the Old Testament, it's viewed in a very militaristic kind of sense. So I don't know how much you know about how uh, ancient uh, wars were fought in the ancient Near East. But Israel fought her wars much like all the other nations fought their wars. They didn't really do much that was different. They had a different God. But all the nations would try to get their gods engaged and involved in the battle itself. And the ways that they would do this is they would take the priests and the, and, uh, uh, the, the uh, soothsayers. They would take uh, choirs. They would take trumpeters. They would take all their spiritual apparatus and they would put it out front of the armies. Because they wanted their gods engaged and involved in what was going to happen in that battle. Israel did much the same. Israel would take sometimes her priests and the choirs and put them out in front because they wanted their God to be engaged in that battle, in what was taking place. And that's really what intercession is, by the way. It is just listening to God for other people, for what is happening, and then praying God's work into them. That's what intercession is. What God wants to do into them, and in a sense, what happens is that, is that, and I know this is going to sound strange, but Daniel weaponizes prayer. He weaponizes it. It is not just this kind of insipid thing that we kind of do sometimes. Uh, uh-uh, uh, uh, He takes it and he makes it a vital, strategic tool in what God is doing. There's this beautiful picture, by the way, of a story in the Old Testament in Exodus 17 about this very thing. As you remember, in Exodus 17, the people of Israel have come out of Egypt, out of bondage and slavery. They are in the Sinai Peninsula there, and they face their first battle, their first challenge from the Amalekites. So they're going to have to go out and fight. Moses and Joshua come together, and they put together a strategy session. And here's what Moses says. Moses said, here's what we're going to do, Joshua." He says, I'm going to stand on the ridge above you. You're going to take the army, all the men that you want to take, and you're going to go into the battle. But I'm going to stand on the ridge, and I'm going to take the staff of God in my hands, and I'm going to hold it up, and I'm going to be praying for the battle. And so that's exactly what takes place. Moses is on the ridge. Joshua's down there fighting. Whenever Moses' hands are up, right, the momentum swings to the Israelites, and they, they are winning the battle. But, hey, if you've ever hung on monkey bars, you know what this is like. Your arms get really tired. So his arms begin to drop, and when his arms drop, the momentum swings back to the Amalekites. So they put his arms up again. It's great. Momentum swings back to the Israelites. Getting tired. Uh. So Aaron and her, who are his right and left-handed guys, they they decide they're going to sit him down on a rock, and they're going to prop his arms up. So they, they are underneath his arms. They are holding his arms up, and he is praying, and eventually the Israelites win the battle. And it's a perfect kind of, picture of what intercession is. Intercession is when you and I hold each other up. Moses holding up Joshua and the battle that's going on down in the valley. Aaron and her holding up Moses as he prays and as he intercedes for the battle itself. It's all right there. That's what intercession is. And in Ephesians 6, we see something very similar which Ephesians 6 is about putting on the full armor of God. Again, a very militaristic kind of context for this. Putting on the full armor of God, right? And if you get to the end of that, what Paul says and suggests the Ephesians do, he says, and pray also, okay, at all times in the spirit with all kinds of prayers and petitions For all the saints, for all the things that are going on. And did you catch that? All, 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 all prayer. And here's what I really believe about Ephesians 6. Here's how you access the armor. It's not accessed any other way. It is through prayer. It is when you pray, you put on the armor. It's not complicated. You don't have to put it on piece by piece. You put on the full armor as you pray. And I think what's happening here for Daniel is Daniel sees the situation going on in the world, sees what's happening in the nation of Israel itself, and he sees prayer as this very, very powerful tool at his disposal. And I think what happens to him is what ought to happen to us. He sees what's happening in the world. You know what he says? Game on. Game on. I'm going to hit my knees and I'm going to begin to pray. It is game on right now. So let's take a deeper look at this prayer. And uh, we're not going to try to go through everything about it, but I do want to read through it because I think it's important for us not only to hear this, but feel it, if I could. You know, I I was sitting backstage. I was listening to the music and the worship band and everything. When you just come backstage sometime, the whole freaking stage shakes. You feel the music. You don't just hear it. You it. Feel it, it's it's vibrating around you. So I think we need to do that sometimes with the Bible, all right? So let's take a deeper look at this. What I want to do is expose you. There's a flow to this prayer, so we'll take a look at that, and we'll begin in chapter uh, chapter 9, verse 3 again. So I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He affirms God's righteousness. That's the beginning part of the flow. God is a righteous God. But then he moves to begin a confession of Israel's utter rebellion. Look at verse 5. For we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame as to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. And then he moves on to recognize God's mercy and forgiveness. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Both of those, by the way, are plural in Hebrew, mercies and forgivenesses, because he wants us to understand it's not just a one-time thing that you get. So look at verse 10, and he begins to admit that Israel is totally undeserving of any of those mercies and those forgivenesses. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, they have been poured out upon us. So he's going to couch this in terms of the consequences that they have experienced now. Because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed the words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity. That means God's just keeping it going. He's prolonging it, right? The Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that He has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned we have done wickedly. And now he wraps up the prayer with this desperate plea for God to act in mercy and forgiveness. Look at verse sixteen. O Lord, according to all of your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all those who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our own righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name." And that brings me to the second observation that I want to make about this prayer, and that is this. It is largely a prayer of confession. Did you notice? I mean, it's so full of confession, at times you go like, man, I'm so tired of hearing the same words over and over and over again, right? But Daniel takes time to confess all this. And I asked myself this question, why confession? Why is so much of this about confession, this prayer? And then it struck me because this is the missing element. This was the missing element that kept Israel from moving forward. This was the missing element that kept God's grace and mercy from flowing into his people. This was the element that was keeping everything held up and at bay. See, I think behind Daniel's prayer, there's another passage of scripture Leviticus 26. It's a classic passage in the Old Testament about God laying out for the nation of Israel while they were still in the wilderness, what would happen to them if they disobeyed his voice? I'm going to read you portions of it, but you can look at Leviticus 26 yourself and kind of study it on your own if you want to. But in Leviticus 26, starting in verse 14, God speaks to the nation. And he says, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, I will set my face against you. Verse 18, and if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Remember the word sevenfold for your sins. In fact, you're not going to be able to forget it. Verse 21, then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Verse 23 and 24, and if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but you walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. Look at verse 27 in spite of this, if you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Verse 31 through 35, and I will destroy your high places, I will cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. I will lay your cities waste, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate. I will not smell your pleasing aromas, and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your city shall be a waste. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. There are striking parallels between Leviticus 26 and Daniel's prayer, and you see it in these following words, things like desolations, desolations, The Sabbaths, he will go on in Leviticus 26 to talk about the Sabbaths, the seven days of rest. And you'll notice the prominence of the number seven, the sevenfold punishment and discipline for sins that he says over and over and over again. These become very important because the number seven figures into the 70 years Daniel has been thinking about, right? But then Leviticus 2640 gives us the key. Listen to these words. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in the treachery they committed against me and also walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. Yet for all that they have done when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord, their God. And I want to give a resounding uh, reinforcement. If they confess their sins, their iniquities, and the iniquities of their fathers. In the back of Daniel's mind, he's saying, this is the thing that's holding us back. And then Daniel takes it upon himself to say, then I have to realize that confession is not, it's the condition and the prelude to restoration. You cannot move forward without it. Listen, there are those of you in this audience and those of you who are out there online who have walked away from God. And when that happens, what happens is you remove yourself out of God's protective care. And you are at the mercy of the world around you. You have nothing but yourself in which to face it with. And there are a lot of people who think, well, I'm going to face it myself. I can do this. Life will break you. Somewhere along the line, life will break you. What had happened to Israel is they had time after time after time not listened, walked away, not obeyed. You can kind of see what Daniel does here in this confession. In confession, see, we accept our responsibility for being part of the problem. That's what confession is. It is agreeing with God with what you have done, who you really are, what your life is like. And it's just getting real with God about our moral failures and where we have been. That's all that it is. But here's the rub. We are experts at dodging that. We have self-directed means by which we do that where we can't seem to admit, we can't seem to own up to those things, right? There's things like denial, we just don't even want to hear about it. Or things like confirmation bias in which we only listen to the opinions of those who already agree with us and we refuse to listen to the opinions of anyone else who might present contrary evidence or contrary insight or perspectives on this. So that's how we just confirm where are we at, you know? I, I'm, I'm not a bad person, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Right? We'll try to spin or soften it there's something called fundamental attribution error in which we believe that if someone fails or does something wrong, that we we chalk it up to the fact that they have some kind of characterological defect, you know, or, or, or fault in them. Hey, but when we do something wrong, oh no, it's just a mistake, right? It's just yeah, I just, I just I just a mistake. I'm not really like that, and we we see this all the time, right? We have this ability to be cognitive, cognitively flexible. And I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, cognitive flexibility, but it's it's a real, it's a thing. I'm not making this up, right? There's a guy, a Duke University professor named Dan Airely who wrote a book called The Honest Truth About Ourselves, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially to Ourselves. And what he noted in our culture at large is there's a widespread tendency for us to cheat and deceive other people. And we have a couple of motivations for why we do this. One is we want what we want, and we'll do whatever we have to do to get it. The second thing is, though, that at the same time we are doing that, we want to be able to look in the mirror and say to ourselves, but I'm, I'm a really a pretty good person, right? It doesn't matter if I'm lying. I, I, I'm still a pretty good person, right? So another guy named Mike Adams, who is a professor at Eastern Connecticut University, actually did research on, on the same thing that was happening uh, for Professor Dan Airely. Uh, professor Airely began to see with his students, and he began to watch this. He began to see with his students in his classes at Duke, that right before midterm exams, there were a rash of deaths that would take place in their families. I use air quotes, deaths, okay? That somebody would die when when it was time for midterms or uh, finals to come up, something would happen. Guess which relative dies the most? Grandma, you're right. Grandma, yes, grandma dies. He began to show that grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before a midterm 19 times more likely to die before a final exam. And even worse, grandmothers of students who are failing in class are 50 times more likely to die than those who are actually doing well in the class. Isn't that amazing? So grandma, watch out. The predictor of your your mortality is gonna be your children's GPA. Okay, your grandchildren's GPA, watch out for that. But that's the point. The point is simply we have very creative ways in which we fool ourselves. Well, I'm not really that bad. I'm not really that person. I'm not really that, that, that individual. But we are. Daniel, in his prayer of confession, pulls no punches. There are no excuses. There's no spin. There's no softening. He, in fact, he piles up Hebrew words for what they have done. Did you notice that in the text? Things like this. He says, uh, he says we have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled, turning aside, not listened. We have committed treachery to God, which is a very relational term, by the way. We tend to think of of sin as just like some kind of technical misfire. No, no, it's relational betrayal. That's what it is. We have not obeyed the voice of God. We have transgressed your law. We have turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. We have done that which is wicked, or we have acted wickedly. You see, all these things, and Daniel pulls no punches, nor does he spare anyone. Everyone's culpable. Kings, princes, fathers... Everyone, even himself. Daniel is fully inclusive in his language. I, or excuse me, we, our, ours, as he talks about this. And what Daniel began to realize is simply this that that there was an important piece to what God was doing that he could fill in as he prayed. And so he hits his knees and he begins to pray, listening to God for what God is doing and then praying that work into the world around him. This points us to a really great truth, by the way. Daring to be different means that we fully own up to our sins. We fully own up. And as Daniel is praying, God begins to give him an answer. Look at verse 20. Even before he's finished. Now, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, this is the angel Gabriel, "'whom I had seen in the vision at the first "'came to me in swift flight.'" That means very, very quickly, all right? "'At the time of the evening sacrifice. "'He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, "'Daniel, I have now come out "'to give you insight and understanding. "'At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, "'a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, "'for you are greatly loved. "'Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision.'" So even before he's finished, God is moving. Man, can I tell you this? God is so eager to respond to us when we confess. So eager to respond to us when we confess. You don't have to like pull it out of him. When you really mean it and you are honest with God and you do business with God, you don't have to pull it out of God. It is there for you. And of course the purpose here, as you notice, four different ways that he says it here is for, to give Daniel insight, understanding, wisdom in this, to help him to, to really get it, to clarify and to shed light. And then Gabriel begins to explain the message, except the explanation does everything but bring clarity. (laughs) I'm not kidding you. These verses by many scholars are considered the most difficult verses in all of the Bible to interpret. Thank you, Lance, for assigning me this passage. So we're gonna read it through. I want you to notice how vague the language is, how ambiguous certain terminology is, how crazy the grammar at times is. It's very cryptic and mysterious. And I wanna remind you that we're reading not only what we call prophetic literature, but we are reading apocalyptic prophetic literature, which is even worse. It's highly, highly, highly symbolic, right? So look at Daniel chapter nine, verses 24 through 27. By the way, on this one, and I received great comfort from this. Uh, one of the, the, the great commentators, Montgomery, says of these four verses, this section, these verses, this is the dismal swamp of Old Testament scholarship, a trackless wilderness of assumptions and theories used in attempts to obtain an exact chronology fitting into the history of salvation. And I was like, oh, thank you, God. Because listen, I was spending six hours, seven hours going through this, just these four verses of the passage, right? And I read over a dozen brilliant, brilliant commentators on this. And I eventually went in the house and I said to Sherry, I have this massive headache because I feel like I'm trying to do um, theological gymnastics, pushing stuff together to try to figure out the chronology and how this all fits together. One of the things that's interesting though is that, that maybe that's what, not, not what God was actually trying to communicate with this. I believe this. This had to be meaningful in some way to Daniel, but it also has to be meaningful to future generations, you, me, who read this. That it has to be, have some meaning to us. So what is he trying to get across to us? And what I want to suggest is that we look at this passage differently. That this passage, when we look at it, we don't look at it in terms of trying to figure out the chronology. How we can predict events. I know we all like to do that. And particularly when we talk about the end times. And Daniel is very much acquainted with the end times. Right? We want certainty. We want to know the time frame. We wanna know the formula. We wanna know what's this event and what's happening in the Middle East and what about that guy and who's this person and and what what kind of events are coming down the pike, right? I wanna suggest it's not about the chronology. I do wanna suggest it's what we call chronography. And here's what chronography is. Chronography is setting up an artificial structure, it's a literary structure, to communicate spiritual truth in such a way that it is uh, encouraging, motivating, inspiring, made more clear, hopefully, but sometimes to drive us to a different place. Like, for instance, have you ever noticed how the the term 40 is throughout the Bible, right? The ark, 40 days and 40 nights. People in the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus, 40 40 days fasting and praying in the beginning of his ministry. Saul, David, Solomon, all reigning about 40. The Bible looks at these as approximate kinds of years, as generations, so to speak, and we do this. We look at 40 as a a process. This is a a long-term story. But there are also three-day stories that aren't always exactly just three days. But the idea of a three-day story is, man, this is a microwave story. This is God acting right now, in time, in space, in history, boom, it's like resurrections, right? Most of us live with 40-day stories but sometimes we get a three-day story. So this is not being used to predict when future events will take place, I do not believe. But I do believe God wanted to communicate several things through this. One, he wanted to communicate to Daniel. Daniel, I love you. I love your heart. You are outrageously loved by me. I love the way that you grieve for your people. I love the way that you're willing to put yourself in the gap. I love the way that you are willing to bend your knee to their needs. Oh, and Daniel, I love your spirit and your heart and your soul in this. You are loved. I also think saying the timing is, is irrelevant here. It's not, he's trying to say to Daniel, it's not about your 70 years, Daniel. It's going to be longer than that. It's gonna be 70 weeks, right? 70 times seven. And look at verse 24 in this. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both the vision and the prophet, and to anoint a most holy. The word one is not in the original Hebrew text here. We don't know what the most holy is, okay? It could be a one, it could be a place, it could be a time. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed, a prince, there's not the word one there either, there shall be seven weeks or seven sevens. Then for 62 sevens it shall be built again with squares, that is streets in a grid. Okay, so the, the streets will be rebuilt in a grid. And a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end that there shall be—excuse wo- me—and to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many. Who is he? We don't know. Is it the Anointed One? Is it the Prince to come? The grammar doesn't really doesn't really give a, an idea to us of that. And he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week. That is one seven. And for half of that week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations, what is that? Shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolated. Did you guys get that? Because I don't, right? I think he's trying to say to Daniel, Daniel, you want certainty and you want the timing? It's not about that. This is going to be a long run. It's going to go extend well beyond the 70 years right? for your people and for the city. But here's what I'm going to be about in that time, in, the, in those, those sevens. To finish the transgression, look verse 24. These are six Hebrew infinitives of purpose. To put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both the vision and the prophet, and to anoint a most holy. That's what I'm going to be about, Daniel. And here's what I think he's saying to Daniel. Daniel, I am not done with you guys yet. You are still a part of what I'm going to be doing in redemptive history. But it's going to be a long road. It's going to get ugly and it's going to be messy. But I will never, ever, 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 ever let go of you. I will never let go of my people. You are still my people. And I thought, man, what a great word because I don't know about you, but when I blow it and when I sin, I have that condemnation feeling sometimes. It's like God will never love you again. God's going to give up on you. When you belong to God, He never gives up on you. You can give up on Him, but He never gives up on you. And I know it wasn't the answer that Daniel was maybe expecting, He wanted a timeline. I don't know, that's what we want too. Certainty, definitive answers, immediate outcomes. But I think it's more about the process of becoming. It's about the process of becoming the right kind of people that God uses to change the world. And it's about partnering with God and God mobilizing us inside to join Him in what He's doing out there to change the world around us, to push back the darkness. We have been in a dark time over the last 18 months, not to say we haven't for the decades and centuries before, right? But to push back the darkness, that's it. And I think sometimes we just miss the point. When we start trying to predict what the future is and what's going to happen, those different kinds of things, I think we are totally missing the point. Could I give you an illustration of that really fast? Because I know we're getting on time. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives his famous all of it discourse, which is about the end of days, the end of time, right? And a lot of people look at us and they try to work out the time frame and all those different kind of things. But I think the real point of 24 is actually what happens in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives a, a series of parables, right? There's the parable of the unjust steward or the manager. So when the master goes away, the manager just does whatever he wants with all the master stuff and he spends stuff righteously. And then the master comes home and he's like, man, what are you doing? You're wasting all my stuff. The idea behind there is that, hey, when I return, be faithful. Just be faithful until I return. He moves to the, the, the parable of the, the, the ten virgins, right? Who don't have enough, some of them who don't have enough oil for their lamps. And it's like, be ready. Be ready at any time. He talks about the parable of the talents. You know, one servant giving five talents, one servant giving three, one servant giving one. Two of them invest their talents in, in, for the master's benefit. One of them buries it. The whole point of that is, hey... Do kingdom business till I return. Don't just bury what I've given you. Use what I've given to you for the glory of God and for the advancing of the kingdom. And then there's, of course, the parable of the sheep and the goats, right? The whole point of that one is, hey, show compassion to those who are marginalized, oppressed, victimized, exploited. When you do it to them, you've done it to me. So, man, until I come back, be people of compassion, I think that was Jesus' point, not what time it was going to happen, not the chronology of events, but what kind of people will we be when Jesus returns and that he's trying to make us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. And this is why prayer is such a strategic tool. John Ortberg writes about this, and he says this, and I'll wrap with this. He says, prayer is the single most fundamental spiritual discipline when it comes to putting off anxiety and putting on peace. Prayer, more than any other single activity, is what places us in the flow of the Spirit. When we pray, hearts get convicted, sin gets confessed, believers get united, intentions get solidified, people receive guidance and information, God's people are strengthened and encouraged, stubbornness melts, wills get surrendered, evil is defeated, grace and mercy are released, illnesses get healed, signs and wonders occur, faith is born, hope is grown, love triumphs, and God wins. Yeah. And that's why I think, like Daniel, it is that we need to hit our knees. And then we need to stay on our knees. One of the things that we are trying to produce here at Bridgeway is a culture of prayer. And, And I have no idea why Lance tapped me to help lead this area, because I feel like such a baby in the whole area, quite frankly. But we're trying to create a culture of prayer. And that will be how we listen to God for others and how we pray God's work into them. That's all about intercession. But I believe this. You and I, and here at Bridgeway, we have a chapter of spiritual history to write, and we will write it. And what will be said about us? Will we be people who are people on our knees and staying on our knees, or will we be people who just simply lean into formulas and culture and other things? Not that those are bad things. And I believe this. God wants to say to us, I want you to be people who seek me with all your hearts, who are on your knees, who stay on your knees. And like Daniel, I think what we want to do as a church together is to say, game on. Game on, church, right? Let's do it. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for every single person here. We wanna offer you the best of ourselves here today. We thank you for the fathers that are present, Lord, we ask for your wisdom, and then we ask that you would light a fire inside of us to be your people in the world, to seek your face, to partner with you in prayer, to release your divine power and strength into the world and to push back the darkness. That is what we want to do, Lord. So empower us, Holy Spirit. Fill us, use us. We give you this time and this day, and we thank you in the strong name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. amen.